Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Arthur Charles Orsag about archaea and the microbe Sulfolobus acidocaldarius specifically. I've wanted to do an archaea episode since I started this podcast, and I'm hoping to do many more as long as I continue doing this. In this episode, we cover all sorts of stuff from archaea that live in extreme environments to those that don't, to how Sulfolobus can help us learn about DNA segregation, to people cooking chickens in the Yellowstone hot springs. We also talk about the evolution of eukaryotes, the search for life on other planets, and why we think archaea doesn't get enough attention in our high school and college textbooks. Since I'm still new to podcasting, I've mostly been interviewing people I know, and I didn't know Arthur before this. They're a friend of a friend, so I was a little nervous interviewing him, knowing nothing beforehand, but we ended up having such a great time. I will also run out of friends to interview eventually, so I've added a form to my website where you can submit yourself or suggest another scientist as a guest on this podcast. It may take me months to get in touch about this if you submit something since I have the next bunch of episodes booked already and a PhD to finish, but I will get to it eventually, I promise. I'm especially interested in connecting with cyanobacteria and diatom researchers. But anyway, I'm really excited for you all to listen to this episode that features a new friend and some archaea. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. So are you, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Arthur Charles Orsag, who is a postdoctoral scholar at University of California, San Francisco in the Mullins Lab. Hi, Arthur. How's it going? Hi. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Before we start with the podcast, could you give a brief summary of your educational background and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I went to college to study cell biology, and that led me to grad school. And in grad school in Paris, I was working on the cell biology of infectious diseases caused by bacteria. Mm-hmm. And so that brought me from the cell biology of more human and mammalian cells to the cell biology of smaller things like bacteria. And that led me to read a lot about archaea because they have some things in common with bacteria. And so that led me to starting this postdoc at UCSF five years ago, where I decided to work on the cell biology of archaea. Great. And which organism are we going to be talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about Sulfolobus acidocaldarius. Awesome. I know that Sulfolobus is part of the archaea domain of life. Could you give a little information on what archaea are and maybe how they're different from other types of organisms? Yeah, so archaea are like a big, large family of single-celled organisms, just like bacteria are a family of of single-celled organisms. And they're separate from bacteria, which means modern-day archaea 
look kind of the same as bacteria because they're very small and they don't have a nucleus, mm -hmm. uh, which is a difference with eukaryotes. But apart from that, they actually have evolved separately from bacteria for a very, very long time. And so they both have very specialized uh, genes and enzymes that can be found only in one and not the other. So archaea are... A lot of them are very well known for being extremophiles, okay. uh, which means that not only did they adapt to extreme living conditions, but that's actually all they know. They thrive in these extreme environments. Uh, so they're well known for that. Cool. But like you said, they're this group of organisms. And I know like a domain is more general than a kingdom. So for example, plants are a kingdom, animals are a kingdom, but they fall under the eukaryotic domain. So archaea is this whole other domain. And I wanted to ask you, it wasn't until like the 1970s that archaea were acknowledged as a domain of life that were separate from bacteria. So why was that? Why did it take so long if they've been around for billions of years? Yeah, that's, that, that's true. Well, actually, archaea were kind of known to exist for okay. a long time before it was decided that they were not bacteria. And back then, people thought they were a separate family of bacteria. Uh, in particular, the first archaea that were discovered were methanogens. Mm -hmm. And so people thought, huh, methanogens, so maybe that mirrors the conditions of early Earth. Okay. So maybe that means that these organisms, these bacteria are very very, very ancient, like look like something that, that's very ancient. So that's why they first called them archaebacteria, because archae mm. means, means ancient, old. So they thought it was a mirror image of uh, very primitive bacteria. And then later on, so even sulf when sulfolobus acetylcaldarius was discovered, that was in 72, they were still thought to be archaebacteria. There was okay. a, one of the first examples of not methanogen archaebacteria discovered and up till then people would tell that things are alike based on morphological traits so like tiny cell or essentially that <laughs> uh, <laughs> morphology or for bacteria the gram staining so like do they have one membrane or two membranes etc and by the end of the 1970s some scientists decided that it was probably more accurate to rely on gene sequences to tell whether two organisms are related. And so they started to sequence a whole bunch of genes, especially genes like uh, the ribosomal RNA. Okay. Which is, because this is one of the you know cornerstone of the biology of the cell to be able to translate uh, protein. And so this is thought to have not changed a whole lot, you know, to be extremely conserved across evolution. And so based on these sequences, Carl, Carl was, was, sorry, I'm gonna say it again. Carl Woese. I don't know how to Yeah, so I don't know how to say his name either because, like, I cite his papers all, all the time. Yeah, yeah, he's, like, so famous. I, I always say Carl Woese because that's how it's spelled, yeah. but I've heard people be like, Vus or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm going to say, yeah, okay. So, and and so one of these people was uh, Carl Woese who <laughs> um, actually was the first to claim that Archaebacteria are not bacteria. They look like them, and you can find them in the same habitat sometimes, but they're a separate family of the living. And so that was based on the ribosomal RNA that was different, but also the fact that there's 
no mostly no peptidoglycan in okay. archaea and so even the cell structure is different and then taking it from there people started to realize that there were even more differences between the, between these two families of cells cool that was great yeah so just because two groups might look alike they actually have a lot of different characteristics and a lot of differences in their dna and so you were talking a lot about how they look. What exactly does sulfalobus look like? If you were to look at it with a microscope, like what does the cell look like? How small is it? Right. So sulfalobus is it's about one micron big. So That's it's, tiny. It's tiny. It's a small microorganism. It's roughly a sphere. Uh, so it's more like a, a caucus, but it's a sphere that doesn't seem to have a very consistently spherical structure. It doesn't seem to be reproducibly a sphere. So it's okay. a sphere with some variation in the sphere. Sometimes it can be a flattened sphere. Sometimes it has some sharp edges and some crevices. And this is why that's a lobus in sulfur lobus. Because like in the first observations in uh, transmission electron microscopy, there were all these blebs and these parts of the cell that looked like lobes. Okay, so it's like it's rough around the edges, we'll say. <laughs> That's right. So it's tiny, it's kind of circular, and where is it found? Sulfolobus acidocaldarius can be found, where it was uh, discovered in 72, can be found in uh, Yellowstone hot springs. Mm. So all these very famously super colorful uh, hot acid lakes where some accidents happen sometimes, <laughs> that's, where it can be. <laughs> that's where it can be found, along with other related species uh, that have different names, but all start with sulfolobus. That's awesome. I'm supposed to go to Yellowstone this summer, and I'm, yeah, I, I'm scared of the hot springs. They explode, and I, I have heard of accidents of, like, people falling in. If you can't fall in, you die. It's, like, the pH is yeah. so low. Yeah, and uh, some people were actually caught once uh, trying to cook a chicken sous vide in a plastic bag because that's the ideal temperature. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's so that's so dangerous. There's like arsenic and mercury and all sorts of stuff in there. So it's probably a very toxic the chicken. The lengths people would go for food. That's so funny. <laughs> Okay, so it lives in Yellowstone in these hot springs environments. And how does it get its energy? Like, what is it doing in nature? It uses sulfur, which is why it's called sulfolobus. Got it. It uses sulfur to obtain energy. And why is it able to live in such hot and acidic conditions? Most life can't live in those conditions. So what's special about this organism? So I don't think we know all the reasons why, but... There are a couple of things that we do know. The first kind of interesting fact is they live, the pH ranges between two and three. So that's extremely acid. But the pH inside of the cell is neutral. It's around mm. seven, seven something. And so that means that to not have their cytoplasm constantly acidified, they have to pump the protons out of the cytoplasm. So it's a very active proton pumps. And so that also generates a very intense uh, gradient across the plasma membrane. Another reason why they're so resistant to acidity is the structure of their lipids, mm -hmm. uh, their phospholipid in the cell membrane, uh, which is the reason why they resist to acidity and also high temperatures. Okay. So in more classic 
cell membranes, biological membranes. You have a bilayer of uh, phospholipids with both the hydrophobic tails pointing to one another and then the hydrophilic heads pointing on the outside. And usually there's kind of a space between these two monolayers, which is why it's a bilayer mm-hmm. in the case of sulfolobus. They have these phospholipids with the hydrophobic legs that are fused together. Oh. Uh, so they're actually, so they're synthesized differently using different enzymes that were actually identified pretty recently. And so these enzymes produce phospholipids with two heads, one on each side, but the legs are fused. So these are very long carbon chains, fatty acid chains that are fused together. And they're also sometimes branched and they have some benzene cycles in the middle. So they have very sturdy phospholipids is the answer. That's really interesting. And so that that helps it with the heat, you said. It also helps them with the heat. Yes. Okay, cool. So the past few episodes of this podcast, we've talked about what model organisms are. And I'm pretty sure Sulfolobus is also a model organism. So I guess we can talk about what you study and why this organism is interesting. What is it a model for and why is it exciting for scientists to work on this organism? Yeah, model organism is an interesting concept, yeah. I guess. Sulfolobus acidocaldarius has become a model organism for, generally speaking, the study of archaea, but also the study of life at high temperature. For example, enzymes that work at very high temperature that we can use in industry, you know, food processing, biotechnology. But it has become a model organism also because it's been studied for quite a long time now. And so scientists have had time to collect a lot of information about it, information about its metabolisms, genetics, etc. Very little on the cell biology itself, because it's pretty hard to apply classic cell biology techniques to such an organism. But it has become a model more generally for archaea. In my case, I use it as a model for studying DNA segregation in archaea and then more generally in prokaryotes. So the question is, during cell division, any given cell often uh, is going to replicate their genome, Uh their chromosomes. And so they're going to have two sets of that genome. And once that one cell becomes two cells, you want to make sure each daughter cell is going to inherit the same amount of genetic material. Otherwise, one of them is going to have too much DNA, the other one is going to have not enough DNA, and nobody's going to be happy with this. So ensuring that the DNA is going to be equally split in between these two daughter cells is fundamental to every form of life. Something that's kind of mind-blowing is even in model bacteria, so bacteria are obviously way better studied, it's been a long time, and we think we know them very well, but even in a model bacteria like E. coli that we know so well, we don't really know how the chromosomes are segregated upon cell division. It's still not a black box, maybe like a dark gray box. Okay. Um, so even in, even in organisms that are very accessible to experiments and microscopy and genetics, uh, etc., we still don't really understand how DNA segregation works in microorganisms. Um, and so we know even less about DNA segregation in archaea. Actually, there's only one system that is known that has been discovered a few years ago in sulfolobus. Mm. It was a different sulfolobus, actually. It was uh, another one that is found in uh, Yellowstone Hot Spring called sulfolobus sulfatericus, 
which in the meantime has changed name and now it's called Saccharolabus sulfotericus. Oh. <laughs> anyway, it's a cousin species to Acidocaldarius. And so it was found in these guys that there were two genes that seemed to be essential for making sure DNA goes equal in two daughter cells. And sulfolabus is a great model for this because in prokaryotes, so bacteria and archaea, the ploidy, so the number of copies of a given genome, varies widely, you know, mm. and it even varies sometimes according to the way you grow them or if you find them in the environments. But not every, uh, we always have that picture of a bacterium with like one huge chromosome. Yeah, like yeah. Fold it like onto itself. Well, actually, most species are polyploid, which means oh. that they have many copies of the same chromosome in one cell. And so in tiny cells, it seems that if you have many times the same chromosome, it doesn't really matter if you count them very well. And if one cell ends up with, let's say, uh, 10 chromosomes and the other cell ends up with like 11, 12, maybe 15 chromosomes, they're all the same anyway. So it doesn't truly matter if you can count them or not. But in other species, which is where sulfolobus comes into play, some species only carry one single copy of their chromosome, they're called uh, monoploid. So this is the case of sulfolobus. And so in that case, once you replicate your DNA, you are with two copies of your single chromosome. And when you divide into two cells, well, there are only two options. Either each cell inherits one chromosome and and everybody's happy, <laughs> or one cell inherits two chromosomes and one cell inherits zero. Mm. The cells that inherit zero DNA is obviously going to die. That's uh, that's sad. And so sulfolobus is a great model to study chromosome segregation for that very reason, because you only have one chromosome. So after replication, there are only two. And so if you try to observe these cells, to visualize this under a microscope, or to use other techniques to quantify the, the DNA, cells can have either one or two chromosomes, which really simplifies the way to, to study it. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That was a really good explanation because I guess its chromosome number and structure is pretty simple where you're able to understand a lot more about it than if it's really complicated. So that's why it's a good model. Yeah. So that was that's great. It's, it's simpler. Yeah, cool. Even in the context of that question of DNA segregation, it's also like a good example of how plastic prokaryotic genomes are. So mm. the DNA segregation system in sulfolabus, like I said before, is essentially thought to rely on two genes, a gene A and a gene B. And it was the way it was identified is because the gene A is the exact same as in bacteria. So they use the same gene A to segregate DNA in bacteria. And so by sequence similarity, these scientists thought, oh, well, look at this. There's that gene that is commonly found in bacteria to segregate DNA that is found in sulfolobus, so it might serve the same function. And right downstream of that gene A is a gene B, and that's where it's interesting. In bacteria, there's also a gene B. It's also a system that works with two genes. But in sulfolobus, like in archaea, the gene B has nothing to do with the gene B in bacteria. What it means is the core component of that system is shared between bacteria and archaea, but then the other protein, which is the one that binds to DNA, is actually completely different mm. between bacteria and archaea. 
So it's still unclear when that system appeared in Archaea. It's likely that at least half of it was inherited from horizontal gene transfer from bacteria. Uh-huh. So that's why I think it's interesting because there are a lot of things in Archaea that are shared with bacteria and then other things that are absolutely unique to Archaea and found nowhere else. And in some cases, like the DNA segregation system, it's actually a mosaic of genes that comes both from Archaea and from bacteria that ended up performing a function together. Yeah, that's really cool. So I, it's so funny because prokaryotic genomes are so plastic, as you said, and, and I mostly work with microbial eukaryotes and I work on a lot of horizontal gene transfer, but in eukaryotes, it doesn't happen so much because they have a nucleus. So like we find one gene that's transferred and it's so exciting and we write a whole paper on it. And I know that really hard to study bacteria and archaea and where their genes originated because they're just sharing genes all the time. And so you said that this gene A that's part of the DNA segregation system, that one gene is similar, like homologous in the bacteria and the archaea. So does that mean that that's something that's in the universal common ancestor of everything? Is that the idea that it's from like the beginning, the beginning of life? That's a good question. I I think there's kind of a yeah rule to think that if something is absolutely universal then it must have been found in the last universal common ancestor in that case i don't think that that dna segregation segregation gene in archaea is universal in archaea at all oh okay so uh or there are different versions of it but uh, my guess is it was horizontally transferred to archaea got it okay another interesting thing about the chromosome in Sulfolobus, and actually it's it's true for most archaea, is the the, the origins of replication. Mm. And so in bacteria, the chromosome has one specific hotspot for replication called the origin of replication. And so that's where replication is going to, going to be initiated and then propagate to the rest of the chromosome. And so that's a, the starting point for replication. And um, in eukaryotes, we don't really have that replication like starts many many different sites. And in archaea, chromosomes have multiple origins origins of replication. In Sulfolobus acidocaldarius, there are three. So replication start from multiple sites. That's important for multiple reasons. The first one is in bacteria, the chromosome segregation mechanisms uh, very often rely on the capacity of the protein B to find that origin of replication, to bind to that site. And this is going to bring polarity into the system. But now in archaea, there are three origins of replication. So how, if we imagine that the segregation of the chromosomes is going to resemble the one in bacteria, then how do you deal with three or more origins of replication? That's a completely open question. Like, do you segregate them, the three of them together, or is the concept of polarity widely different? That's the first interesting point. Mm. The other interesting thing is, like I was saying, is obviously because it just goes to show how archaea and bacteria are fundamentally different on very deep levels in cell biology. Okay, and that will bring us to this other topic that always comes up with archaea. So archaea and bacteria look a lot alike, but they have a lot of fundamental differences. And then, so there's three domains of life. And the third one is eukaryotes which include um, plants, animals, fungi, protists. I feel like this is a very protist-heavy podcast, generally, just because that's what I study. But 
archaea don't look like eukaryotes, but I know that there's a lot going on in terms of evolution. And I think this is one of the most interesting stories of biology is the whole the evolution of eukaryotes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a little, obviously, it's kind of self-centered of us to want to study ourselves sure. as usual. It's obviously a fascinating, that's one of the biggest transitions and evolution of life on earth. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's so you were talking about these three domains of life, bacteria, archaea, eukaryotes. And as of a few years ago, it became so much clearer that eukaryotes and archaea have very, you know, very deep connections in terms of evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was actually proposed that there are only two domains of life on Earth. So that's mm. the 2D tree of life. On one side, you have bacteria. And on the other side, you have archaea and eukaryotes together. So bacteria and archaea split up a very, very long time ago, like three and a half billion years ago, and then lived their life. And <laughs> it appears so <laughs> it appears so that eukaryotes may have emerged from a specific family of archaea a long time ago. Archaea were discovered uh, a few years ago called Asgard. Yeah. And these guys were really interesting because these genomes were sequenced and assembled and within these genomes it was clear they were archaea but they found a pretty big number of genes that were thought forever to be absolutely unique to eukaryotes to the point that they were called uh, eukaryotic signature proteins Mm -hmm. and so a lot of these genes are involved in every eukaryotes in very specific cellular functions like intracellular membrane trafficking and all that has to do with the fact that we have compartments in our cells. But these cells are still prokaryotes in the sense that they don't have a nucleus, they don't have intracellular compartments. So why do they have these genes? You know, what what do they use them for? So that's obviously an interesting question. But that went to show that some genes that we thought were special to eukaryotes were way more ancient than what we thought and in fact were more ancient than eukaryotes themselves. Hmm. So that paved the way for many more discoveries and studies that brought evidence that Asgard archaea, that are modern days uh, archaea, and eukaryotes actually share uh, a common ancestor a few billion years ago. Being a eukaryote just means you have a nucleus and a mitochondrion, or at least one mitochondria. So like that common ancestor is the the big cell that the nucleus and the mitochondria are inside of, and then the mitochondria came from bacteria. So I always thought that was so interesting how some sort of archaeal cell ended up with an energy-producing bacterium inside of it, and that paved the way for eukaryotes. And then we don't really know where, like, the nucleus came from, right? That's, like, a whole other podcast, probably. Yeah, there, there are a lot of different <laughs> hypotheses. Actually, there's still it's still kind of debated in what orders things happen. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the last uh, eukaryotic common ancestor, Leka, which is the difference. yeah had all that we know today in nucleus, intracellular compartments, mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. But the first eukaryotes, and then maybe many versions of eukaryotes existed and then 
weren't selected for and disappeared and we have no idea what they used to look like. But the first eukaryote could either have been a very simple archaeal cell that somehow ended up with an alpha proteobacteria Mm -hmm. inside. And that led to the invention, like the emergence of intracellular compartments and the nucleus in particular. Or there was already, like you said, a more complex cell with maybe a nucleus, and that cell acquired a mitochondrion. It's uh, still pretty much debated. My favorite hypothesis, the one I think is the strongest, is the first one where it was a very simple, you know, everyday Asgard-like archaea that ended up getting way too close with a bacteria. And actually there are some, it's it's always difficult to extrapolate, but um, the first Asgard archaea that was successfully cultivated was very recent, uh, a couple of years ago, was found in, they couldn't ob- obtain a pure culture of it. It was, it had to be in that syntrophy with that other bacteria that would produce something that the, the archaea uses, you know? And so there's this very metabolically intimate relationship between that archaea and that bacteria that, you know, tends to show that maybe that's how things happened, like that dependency yeah, I always liked that hypothesis too. It's been a while since I've like thought about is that the hi- the hydrogen hypothesis? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I always really liked that one too. That made a lot of sense to me and I know that this idea is like well if they can find an archaeal cell that's able to remodel its membranes and engulf and eat bacteria then we can like prove that this all happened and now there's I think now they're saying like it probably didn't eat stuff, but there's other ways that organisms can fuse without eating each other. And I, yeah, so yeah, I I always liked that one too, but there's like a million different hypotheses. And, And I think that brings up this point that's come up on this podcast a lot, which is that scientists don't have all the answers. We know a lot, but we don't know a lot. That's true. That's, that's actually something that I personally think is exciting. We're, yeah, I mean, Maybe not for crucial, you know, human health issues. Like I wish we know more. Sure. Or all these questions about evolution and uh, how eukaryotes emerged, etc. You know, I I don't think we'll ever know, ever be sure. But um, we can just have like a better idea of how it might have happened. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll just never know. Like we're talking about. When you talk about the ancestor of of like modern days organisms, like that ancestor has disappeared billions yeah. of years ago, and usually this is like a soft cell with no bones and no mineral or whatever, so impossible to find fossil forms of this. So the only fossils we have is like trying to go back in time with a molecular clock and sequence stuff and uh, compare them, but. I think it's exciting that we'll probably never know. Yeah, I think it's exciting too. And it's always fun to think about how life has been around for nearly 4 billion years on this planet. And almost everything that was alive is extinct. Like, you know, 0.001% of species that have ever existed are what we know. But there are probably all these other weird things that have gone extinct. Even like if you just think of animals, you know, they find these fossils of these bizarre looking animals in the ocean and, you know, nothing like that exists today. So who knows what kind of microbes were around? That's true. And and when you think about it, 
Luca, so the last universal common ancestor, mm-hmm. was kind of the last one standing. But who knows? It's 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 understood that probably life appeared and disappeared multiple times yeah. over Earth. So same thing. We will never know what other Lucas were out there. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and like that brings me to, I guess, into some astrobiology stuff. So. Like, I was thinking when I knew you were coming on to talk about sulfalobus, you know, I know, like, a big question in biology is what are the limits of cellular life? So, for example, like, what's the hottest temperature a cell can physically tolerate? And, like, if we find a planet somewhere else in another solar system or another galaxy and it's, you know, within that temperature range, can we hypothesize that life might be there? So, you know, can can studying sulfalobus or other archaea help us understand these questions and search for life elsewhere in the universe? I will say maybe not specifically studying sulfalobus, sure. but yeah, maintaining that effort that has been done to understand more, more globally the diversity of prokaryotes on Earth, because like also bacteria can be, I mean, even small eukaryotes can be extreme usually not the same extent as extent as archaea that's that's for sure but it's true that if we don't know all the species that are on earth we never will we will have a range of what we think is life that is more narrow than it actually is and so it's true that if if you identify a new planet somewhere and you want to know maybe if it can support life if you don't know that life can thrive at 120 degrees well, you, you're going to rule out that planet for a potential source of, of life when really maybe there's life there. Uh, so I think it's important to keep describing as good as we can life as we can find it on Earth to expand that range, the possible range. And then archaea, of course, for example, methanogens are very interesting. So methane is that greenhouse gas and very little methane is produced by, you know, geochemical activity of the earth crust and whatever most of the methane that is in the atmosphere comes exclusively from methanogens which means archaea mm-hmm. so all the that come from rumen and intestines and everything so if there was methane on a, on a different planet in the atmosphere that raises questions like how yeah. can there be so much methane there if the only source of methane we know here is predominantly uh, biological yeah, that's a really good point, having to use our deductive skills to guess what sort of things could produce different chemicals on other planets. Also, it's a good point to bring up how the methanogens are what's producing the methane. I think people are always blaming the cows, you know, for producing the methane, but it's not really them. It's the the microbes in their microbiome. Absolutely. No, the, the cows have nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so climate change is all archaea. Well, they play a role. Let's not blame <laughs> the archaea either. Yeah. Well, also, and if the planet got warmer, the archaea would love it. Ah, some would. Some, some would. would, yeah. But, but uh, that's the other thing about archaea that is still somehow a misconception is because a lot of them were found as extremophiles. And so now yeah. they're very famous for being for having members that are thermophiles, acidophiles, uh, halophiles that withstand like amazing amounts of salinity. But after this, when people started to sample, after we knew a little more about archaea, we had better tools to identify them, mm-hmm. uh, for example, by PCR. And so then people started to sample 
everywhere, like, you know, oceans, sediments, uh, rivers, gardens, plants, everything. And archaea are everywhere. Yeah. And so even in non-extreme environments, one, I think the best example of, is there are archaea in the ocean. And actually, there are some estimates that up to 20% of the picoplankton, so plankton that is single-celled organisms, so 20% of that picoplankton is archaea. Exclusively, that means one in five cells. That's massive. That would make archaea one of the largest biomasses in the ocean. That's and the amazing. ocean is not boiling acid, is, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think archaea get a lot of attention for being these crazy extremophiles, but. And there's so much unknown biodiversity on the planet. I think you said before, you're like, we won't ever know everything that's on the on Earth. I want to know everything that's on Earth. Like, I'm obsessed so with all I, these. So I. Yeah, I, I love have, whenever they discover. And we have methanogens. And we have methanogens in the human gut as well and other archaea. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm fact. always I'm always excited because I study eukaryotes and protists. You know, like every couple months, someone comes out with a paper. We found this new, not just a new species, like they found a whole new lineage, like a new kingdom level lineage all the time. And I'm sure it's the same with the prokaryotes. Like I was actually, there's a ton of different bacterial kingdom level groups that were just discovered. So there's so much we don't know. That's true. And still somehow we didn't find any pathogens in archaea. Oh yeah. It's a very fascinating point too. Like there are a lot of bacterial pathogens that are even, even uh, eukaryotic pathogens, you know, um, fungi and parasites and, and stuff. But so far, not really archaea. Yeah, what's that about? Do we know? I don't know. No, we don't know. Like, there's one example of a, a methanogen that was found in some brain abscesses in some patients. And it was always found in association with that hydrogen producing bacteria surprise surprise but if that's true it would be more like an uh, opportunism but you know there's not real pathogen that we know of you know there's some there's always like some diseases that we do not know the cause of Uh, so far it doesn't seem as though archaea have any pathogens no, it's, that's so weird because, you know, there's like eukaryotes that infect other eukaryotes and there's so much gene transfer between bacteria and archaea and bacteria have genes that make them pathogenic and I guess the archaea just don't get those. It's so weird. Have people tried to engineer archaea to pick up pathogenic genes? Is that like an evil experiment? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I'm not sure sometimes that it's just a heterologous expression system to test the gene, like the function of a gene outside of its cellular context. Why not? But yeah, maybe that's a little dangerous. Yeah, I feel like especially now after all of these crazy ideas of COVID and like where COVID came from, maybe we shouldn't be like engineering new types of infective Maybe we should just rejoice that we don't have more pathogen in the archaea family. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Grateful for it. Yeah, me too. I've had enough, you know, enough bacterial like infections in my life. I don't need any other kinds of infections and viruses, obviously. And viruses. But archaea have their own viruses. You know, archaea can get sick, just like bacteria can get sick with phages. And archaea have completely unique and different set of viruses that exclusively infect archaea. And they're oddly shaped and they have Mm. like, they can form little pyramids or pear-shaped or tear-shaped. And huh. 
that aren't seen in any other bacterial or eukaryotic viruses, which is another huge difference between archaea and bacteria. I love that. I love I love that they because I think, you know, archaea are kind of weird and now their viruses are weird. I like I like thinking about these weird microbial things that we wouldn't expect. Um, is there is there anything else you want to bring up? Do you have anything like do you have any hot takes? Hot takes. <laughs> no, I'm not very controversial. Okay. I'm very peaceful. I'm I'm but- obsessed with like I <laughs> I really want this podcast to be controversial at some point. Like I'm trying, I'm always trying to get like hot takes, but, and some episodes we've had, but most of the hot takes are like the hot take that I always have, which is just that humans are stupid and microbes are cool, which I think we kind of already covered. So. True. I I mean, if there's one thing that keeps not annoying me, doesn't, doesn't piss me off, but I feel like, in spite of the predominance of archaea on the globe and like how important they are in the ecology of the planet. And now we've just talked about it, evolutionary speaking, as probably our ancestors, even that doesn't really matter. We've known archaea for a long time now. And somehow by oversimplifying things, uh, even in colleges and stuff, I feel like People don't really hear about archaea a lot, or when they do, they're just referred to as archaebacteria. Yes. still archaebacteria everywhere, and that's that really has fallen out of fashion. They have their name, they're different, uh, they're everywhere, uh, and they're very important. And I think there's still, a, in the in a broader audience, lack of, uh, of knowledge, a lack of, yeah, so maybe we're doing a poor job at communicating how important archaea are or how important it is that we understand that they're different from other organisms, but that should, that should change. So I think that's a really good point and I'm glad you brought that up. And here's my hot take. I think that people who make biology textbooks make them for people who want to get into med school. And like, I really believe that. And, and it's so bad. I don't want to talk shit about my friends. I have a lot of friends who are doctors, like medical doctors, and they don't know anything about like protists, archaea. And, and I get that archaea don't infect humans, but like plenty of protists infect humans and they don't know like what a protist is. And I do think that biology textbooks are very much focused on bacteria, which are totally interesting. But I do think that it's the curriculum people that make up curricula are very much like, I mean, there is, there's so much to learn, but I don't know. It's possible, you know, like maybe just. I mean, again, their archaea are part of the human microbiome, yeah. just as bacteria are, even though in terms of sheer numbers, there doesn't seem to be as many archaeal cells as bacterial cells that are predominant in sure. the gut and the skin, but they're there, and it's just harder to study something that is not very abundant, and so yeah, it's still true. unclear what the relationship between having archaea in your microbiome versus not having them in your microbiome makes difference in terms of health especially in terms of metabolism in human but chances are that they play a role that's the first thing but also also maybe maybe i just do not accept that that things move kind of slowly for example when i was in grad school and i was a ta at the university i remember the textbook 
would describe to the first year biology students that they were prokaryotes and eukaryotes and they would point to the differences. And back then, which is not that long ago, they would still explain that prokaryotes, for example, do not have a cytoskeleton. And mm. this is, even then, we knew that wasn't true. Yeah, that's, that's I interesting. I remember asking if I could just like teach my student otherwise, because I knew it wasn't correct. So maybe things take a long time to translate from the bench to textbooks. Yeah, that's true. And it takes a long time. Like, you know, a big paper can come out, but a lot of papers have to come out before it makes it into a textbook, I guess. And even like, I remember in high school, I feel like we're probably the same age-ish, maybe you're a little older. In high school, they definitely still called it archaebacteria. And I remember being taught like Monera. 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 I don't even know what that, I'm going to Google it right now. It's like a thing. It's like, I think it's what I remember learning this in a class in middle school or in high school, the Monera kingdom. It's a biological kingdom made up of prokaryotes, but it was like from the 1800s. And it's just a really old term that doesn't mean anything anymore. And I remember learning everything that's not a plant, animal, or fungus. They don't mention protists. They're like, everything that's not a plant, animal, or fungus is a Monera. I was like, what? Oh my God. Yeah. Well, luckily, cool podcasts. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> the, the podcast is ahead of the textbooks. <laughs> it is. Well, I think this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I am so excited to talk about Archaea, and I really want to do more Archaea episodes going forward. And I know that you are, like, the head of this Archaea community, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yes, I'm a part of a an organization called the Archaea Power Hour that was funded a few years ago by professors uh, here in the United States working in Archaea. And the idea was to, on one hand, to promote Archaea science, so Mm -hmm. for people to get to know archaeal biology more, but also it's a platform. And so now we have one here in America and one in Europe. The idea, especially during the pandemic, was to provide a platform for young scientists working in the archaea field Mm. uh, to talk about that work, to network with other archaea scientists across the United States and uh, Latin America. Uh, So it's a very pan-American initiative. Uh, So that was to bring people closer because like there are way more people working on archaea that we think there are, like they're also everywhere. Also because, again, archaea were known for a very long time and a lot of people do tremendous work on understanding their ecology, metabolism, genetics, etc. Now there's kind of a baby field, which is the cell biology of archaea, that is kind of starting to emerge and that's very, very exciting. Like people are develop, like developing new t- techniques and like adapting existing techniques to study extremophiles and that's absolutely fascinating. So anyway, so Archaea Power Hour has been a very exciting experience and so has grown strong and we so we have a monthly virtual conference mm. where we invite two to three speakers, usually grad students or postdocs, even undergrad to present their work on Archaea. You should sign up. I'll send you the link. Okay. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast too if you want me to share it. Yes, that would be great. We have a website. You can use a website to sign up for the listserv and the Slack channel to be kept in the loop and know when we have virtual conferences and everybody is welcome to attend. So if you want to learn more about Archaea, 
Yeah. What's the, the place. What's the website? The website is archaea.page. Cool. Okay. And I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And then if listeners want to follow you or the work that you're doing, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I think my handle is a underscore Charles Orsag in one word. So that'll have to be written down. So I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I had such a good time. Thank you. So did I. Thank you so much for having me. That interview was so much fun. As I've mentioned, I love all organisms that are considered unusual or don't get a lot of attention, and I think that's why I'm so taken with the Archaea domain of life. I'm excited to become part of Archaea Power Hour, which is the organization that Arthur is on the organizing committee for that was mentioned at the end of the episode. Please also check it out. There aren't a lot of informational resources on Archaea, as we discussed, and this is a really good one. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beneches. For more information on microbes at the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. <laughs>